Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. And welcome again if you're visiting with us today. My name um, is Jesse, and we're glad to be with you, to be worshiping alongside of you, especially to be celebrating today, uh, this day that we remember the resurrection of Jesus, especially on this day. So it was on a Friday that Jesus was crucified, that he died and was buried, but on the third day that he rose from death to life. And that's what we're celebrating this morning, but not just the bare facts of that event, as remarkable and true and significant as they are, but we're celebrating today what Jesus' resurrection means for you and me, because it's so much more than just the bare facts, as true and remarkable and significant as they are. And we're going to do that. We're going to, we're going to dive in to celebrate this even further as we pick up in our series on the Gospel of John, a series we've entitled, Jesus Changes Everything. But you'll notice that rather than turning our attention to, to the account of Jesus' resurrection, which is found in John 20, we're going to consider today the account of the resurrection of a man named Lazarus, found in John chapter 11. And that's because in the gospel of John, before the account of Jesus' resurrection, we're told what the resurrection means for you and me. And we're told that through this account of the resurrection of this man named Lazarus. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to John chapter 10. But before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, As we celebrate today the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that we would not only stand amazed that such a thing is possible, that such a thing was accomplished, that such a thing happened nearly 2,000 years ago, but that we would stand amazed that Jesus' resurrection means we have the hope of a resurrection of our own. And that in some sense... We might participate in that resurrection even today as we await the final resurrection yet to come. That defeating death, Christ defeated death on our behalf. And that rising to life, he's made life everlasting available to us. I pray we would know that life today in the person, through the work of Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen. Well, in 1975, a novel was published that has been hailed a modern children's literature classic. 1975, and I wonder how many of the kids have heard of it. I wonder how many of you have heard of it. It goes by the title, Tuck Everlasting. Anyone ever read it? It tells the story of 10-year-old Winnie Foster, who who meets in the woods one day a boy by the name of Tuck, who she finds drinking from a spring. And he appears to be no more than 17, which is a 
a gap that is spannable, 10, 17. That's not that bad. My mom was 15. My dad was 30 when they met. 10, 17, not all that bad. But this is how, this is how the teller of the tale introduces this, this guy named Tuck. For some, time passes slowly. For others, they have never enough. For Jesse Tuck, it didn't exist. And that's because in this book, though he appeared to be 17, Jesse Tuck was in fact 104, which is a little more of a gap. (laughs) And he was in those woods drinking from that spring because years before he had found that it had the power to sustain life. It was, in a sense, a fountain of youth. And this is the story of Winnie and Tuck's relationship. It's the story of their fleeing from those who wanted to exploit the power of that spring and about their falling in love in the process. But mostly, it's a story about life. And how everlasting isn't just about living longer. Because by the end of this book, it's clear that living long enough to watch everyone around you die isn't life. And neither is living long enough to wish that you could die yourself. That though life is what we're all in a sense going after, getting that on our own, whether through modern medicine or some fountain of youth, we actually don't get what we're going after at all. Because everlasting isn't just about living longer. And the the death that holds such sway over our world runs much deeper than just the grave. Because it's something we carry with us, something we carry inside of us, and something we can't take care of on our own. And so like the characters in in Tuck Everlasting, we come to a, a fork in the road, either to give up the search or to go on pretending that somehow we're going to find what isn't really out there for us to find. Unless that is... The story of this gospel, the story of the the gospel of John, of Jesus, and how Jesus changes everything is in fact a story about how Jesus changes life itself. A story about how Jesus changes everlasting, which in fact is what we find in this account of the resurrection of this man named Lazarus. How the problem we have is answered In a promise Jesus gives because of the provision Jesus makes. How the problem we have that's deeper than the grave, right, is answered in a promise that Jesus gives because of the provision that Jesus makes. So first, the problem that we have. And we see it in this man named Lazarus. Verse 1 says this, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus was the man, Bethany was the village, which it says was the village of Mary with her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, even though we haven't heard that story yet in this gospel. 
whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And you can imagine the emotion wrapped up in a message like that, can't you? He whom you love is ill. Because it's almost, it's almost as if they're raising a question. Do you, in fact, love him? Wondering, in fact, if he loves this man named Lazarus. Because he, he's at the end of his rope. This illness is not just your everyday cold. This is something more. Probably something, as best we can tell, that plagued this guy for his life. Probably something hereditary that he, he inherited from his father that was going to lead one way or another to this guy's death. And so they send to Jesus on his behalf because there's nowhere left to turn. But it says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, it says in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So don't go thinking that he didn't. But listen to what it says, because here's the twist in the story. Jesus loved them, so he decided that was the day he was going to show up late. Look at verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, so, because he loved them, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he loved them. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I remember, Emmett was five, so you kids should be able to catch on to this too. Emmett was five, and I was sitting there reading this one day, and I called Emmett over. I said, come here. Tell me if this makes sense. Jesus loved them. So, he stayed two days longer where he was. And it said, no, it makes no sense. That makes no sense. You don't stay longer. Don't go home. Don't do this with your wife. Don't do this with your husband. Because you love them, that this is the day you're going to show up fashionably late when they really need you the most. This is not, this is not something that makes sense. Unless Jesus lets Lazarus die, which he dies. He does, in fact, die. Unless Lazarus is, dies to prove the point that everlasting isn't about just living a little longer. That our deepest problem is death, even if death runs much deeper than the grave. And that this is precisely the problem that Jesus came to deal with and is the only one who can deal with it. So Jesus says, this illness does not ultimately lead to death. And after two days, Jesus heads towards Bethany, which concerns his disciples a little bit. And you would have been concerned too if you were one of his disciples because Bethany was just a mile or two away from Jerusalem. And if you remember the story that we've been tracking through this whole time, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, good things don't happen, right? Jesus makes statements, and then people want to stone him. So this is not a good thing. His disciples are quite concerned at this, and you would have been as well. But after two days, Jesus starts to head there. His disciples are concerned. 
And yet that's where they head. And their trepidation, I want you to see this, how this, how this functions in this passage. Their trepidation, their fear quickly turns into resignation in the face of Jesus' determination. Jesus says in verse 15, I'm glad that I was not there when Lazarus died so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, verse 16, called the twin. He shows up later in this gospel. Thomas is great, not because he's always doing what he should, but because he looks an awful lot like me and you, if you're honest. But he looks a lot like me. Thomas is great. So listen to Thomas, verse 16, called the twin. This is what he says. Let us also go that we may die with him. And just dwell on that for a moment. And ask yourself this question. Who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Because we often think that this is the, the statement of Thomas's courage, right? At least he wants to go, right? At least he's willing to follow his Savior wherever he may lead, right? But that's not really what Thomas is saying. That's not really what he's saying through this. Let us go that we may die with him. Because the him isn't Jesus. It's Lazarus. This is not a statement of Thomas's courage in the face of ultimate failure. This is not Gimli in Lord of the Rings, right? Small chance of success. Ultimately, death. What are we waiting for? This is not Gimli. Thomas is saying, we sure know how to pick them, guys. If he's going to go, we might as well go as well, guys. Because death today or death tomorrow, what does it really matter, guys? So let's go and join the guy who's already in the tomb. Because our problem is not only seen in Lazarus, where he ultimately ends up in the grave, it's seen in us who we have no answer otherwise. We might as well be there as well. It's an ultimate resignation to the absolute end at which we're aimed that we can do nothing about. Let us go also that we may die with him. Because even the disciples did not dare to hope that Jesus could in fact deal with this problem. This problem that runs deeper than the grave. Whether, whether like Lazarus, where some were dead, or like Thomas, who were absolutely resigned to its inevitability. And I wonder if some of us here today are in a similar spot. Because we can sing the songs, we can show up on a day like today, and yet not really believe a word of it. We could sing the songs, celebrate the day, but deep down doubt that any of this ever really happened or was ever really possible, or if it did, whether it really has anything to do with me. Because it's an opponent we can't beat. It's an enemy we can't defeat. And pretend or not that somehow we're going to find the life we're looking for 
the truth of the matter is, it's not there for us to find. And yet, this story isn't just about the problem Jesus came to deal with on our behalf. It's about the answer that we find second in the promise that Jesus gives. It says in verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. When he decided to stay back, he was probably four days journey away. So he sort of timed this perfectly. He was two day, four days in the tomb already. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had, had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to, met, to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Death we got, life we want. Whatever you ask of God, we know that he'll give it to you. To which Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha says in return, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. There's a hint, though, that that's not good enough, right? Ever feel like that? Ever feel like that sometimes? That the hope, the hope of what's to come doesn't outweigh the pain of the here and now? A lot of people, a lot of us don't put hope in the hope to come because we're so focused on the pain in the here and now. I think that's a little bit what Martha's going through. But listen to what Jesus says, because this is the promise that he gives. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the one who turns back the hands on the clock of death. And I'm the one who sustains life in the face of it. The resurrection and life, he says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, even now. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. At least not in the end. At least not like we all must without him. So he asks her, do you believe in me? Because Jesus says, this is the promise that I give. This is the answer to your problem. The only answer that's out there. It's not found anywhere else. Life without death, this is why I came. This is what I'm about. Do you believe it? But it's almost too good to be true. Put yourself in this position. You've been there. You've stood by the graveside. You've done it. And if you haven't done it yet, you'll do it soon. Do you believe me? Something we hear, may even confess. But it's hard in the midst of life to get it off your lips. In this world that's so riddled with war, so overcome with cancer, so diseased and death-ridden. Even here, Easter morning. Especially when it's starting, staring us in the face like Lazarus. Or whatever graveside you were at last. And part of it is bound up with the fact that, that God supposedly loves us. But leaves us too long. You ever cry that? You don't need to show your hand. You ever been there? There's a poem that's entitled, If, if I Were God. 
It goes like this and captures the heart of what, what makes Jesus' statement here so hard to swallow. It says this, if I were God, I'd end the pain and break on in to show my face, to prove I cared and that I hear, to save myself from such disgrace of claiming love while doing naught and leaving all my children shod with hurt and fears throughout the years, what I would do if I were God. The problem we got is death without hope of life. But here's a promise of life without death. And yet there's something inside of us that makes us doubt that the one who gives the promise has any more chance of getting it for us than we do. Do you believe this? He says, no, no, often I don't. I don't see Jesus raising anyone from the dead these days. I've been to enough funerals. I know that people don't come back. But that's because we don't see that Jesus was dealing with a problem deeper than the grave. And before everlasting can be about living longer, about living forever, It has to first be about life being possible at all. That the problem we have, answered in a promise that Jesus gives, he is the resurrection and the life, is made possible, third, by the provision Jesus makes. And it's a provision that's been anticipated since the very opening lines of this gospel. A light that would dawn not only in creation, but into the darkness of the human heart, into the darkness of our present world. But it's also a provision that's woven actually into the very fabric of this story here. So that even at the very moment Jesus stands before Lazarus' tomb after becoming angry at what makes us weep, you read the story, and weeping over what makes us most angry. And the stone is rolled away even at that moment as Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Even at that moment, that, that, that man emerges from his grave. That this isn't a story just about one guy who gets to live a little longer. As if everlasting was just about living a little longer. It's woven into the very fabric of this story, the provision that Jesus makes. And you see it first. Do you know where? In that odd little sentence right at the beginning where it introduces not Lazarus but Mary as the one who would anoint Jesus. Isn't it odd? We haven't read about that story yet. It doesn't come till the next chapter. And yet John puts it here. Because it's meant to to give us the lens through which to see this entire story. That we would not think that this is simply a story about one guy getting raised to live just one moment more. Because in the ancient world, you were only anointed for one reason. Do you know what it was? You only ever anointed people for one reason. To commit them to God. Whether as a king or a priest into his service or to commit them into God's hand when they're about to die and there is no other way. And so we're told this this foretelling of an event we haven't even seen yet. 
when Jesus will be anointed for one reason, to commit him to God, both as his king and as one who will reign in death. Because this isn't just about Lazarus being raised. Even if we stand by gravesides and wish that it was sometimes. This isn't just about living a little longer. It's about dealing with something deeper. It's woven into the the very front of this passage. But likewise, after Lazarus comes out of the grave, the story doesn't end, but comes back to this very point. It's not often read together, but let me read to you what happens after Jesus calls Lazarus out of his tomb. Verse 45 says this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. God forbid. And the Romans will come and, and take away both our place and our nation. As if it hadn't been taken away already. Tells us a lot about where their priorities were, which was not in the people they were supposed to be shepherding. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then the author adds what is perhaps the most important interpretive comment in this gospel. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. See, from the the foretelling that Jesus would soon be anointed as king, to this foreshadowing that, that, that before his own resurrection, the throne on which he would sit would be a cross. This story about life is first about a problem we have, answered second in a promise Jesus gives made possible only and ultimately by third, the provision that he makes. Because when it comes to everlasting, life out from under the punishment of death can't just be about living longer the way we are. The poem I quoted from earlier is longer than I read. Let me just read how it unfolds. If I were God, I'd end the pain and break on in to show my face, to prove I cared and that I hear, to save myself from such disgrace, of claiming love while doing naught and leaving all my children shod with hurt and fears throughout the years, what I would do if I were God. But what he did, I'd never do. 
to send my own, to take our place. The ones who turned and walked afar and never our own steps retrace. To send my son on their behalf, to make provision for their past. And all they did and never do, but seek to make their pleasure last. And ne'er content, they live for self and seeking life but finding nil. When made for me, they were to start, yet wander always, wander still. No, what he did, I'd never do to make light possible for you. To bear not just the fruit of pain, but also limb and stem and root. That die we may, yet will we live and live with him. We never die because life is more than here and now, but then and there when all's made right. And looking there to what will be and what he did for you and me, what's left is not so bad to bear. For die today, alive we'll be. Story of Jesus. The story of Lazarus is a story about our problem. That we die and never actually live. But it's also a story about a promise. That there is a way for us to live and never die. But our getting the one in place of the other is made possible as Lazarus' resurrection then and as our resurrection someday by the resurrection and the life dying in our place. Because it's his life that makes our life possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We celebrate today an empty tomb. But may we never forget the cross that led there. And not just the pain and the scourging and the unbearable torture that your son went through but that he bore much more than we could see on the outside on our behalf. That he rose. May we take that as our hope that we rise as well and someday we'll rise forevermore. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Some scholars have surmised that if he had not said Lazarus, all the tombs of Judea would have emptied. It misses the point, though, that the story wasn't done with just raising Lazarus from the dead, but was looking forward to the day that the resurrection and the life would die on our behalf. It did rise, though. Even then, however, the marks of the crucifixion were not undone. Alethea was reflecting this week on the, the joys of Easter and wrote this. I think it's supposed to be a song. But I can't carry a tune, nor do I know the tune. But this is what she wrote. Let us rejoice. Our Lord has risen. He has come to pay our debt, 
No more tears will come, and Satan will be crushed. Amen. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.